Our passage this morning is Matthew 27, 57 through 28, 15, which can be found on page 835 of your Bible. If you would, and if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers in Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's, governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we look at this story and consider the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray as we prepare. Lord, thank you for the joy that is so fitting to this day, the joy of song, the passion of prayer, and now, Lord, the truth of your word. Would you give us ears to hear your voice this morning as we consider your word, as we consider what you have to say to us? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we love to tell stories in our family, whether it's funny stories or family lore or just recounting meaningful events in our lives. 
the story of Carissa's and my first date, during which I actually uttered the words, wow, you're a good eater. (laughs) Somehow there was a second date. The story of my wife attempting a 30-foot cliff jump that landed in a belly flop. Thankfully, there was not a second jump. The story of a small brain tumor that I had years ago that resolved and went away on its own without surgery. The story of Carissa and some friends getting caught in a hail and a thunderstorm above treeline hiking in Colorado, uh, getting lost, losing the trail as they took cover and only finding that trail again when the fog split for just a second for someone to glimpse a little cairn of rocks marking the trail. And and as we tell these stories in our family, every now and then, one of our kids will stop and start doing a little fact-checking. Is that true? Did Did that really happen, or are you just making that up? Because while some stories can be entertaining or inspiring, regardless of whether or not they're true, you think of fiction, for instance. Fiction uh, doesn't have to be grounded in history or reality for it to have its intended impact. Other stories lose their significance if they're not true. I mean, you think of a historical biography. What good is a historical biography of someone if the author plays fast and loose with history? or a journalistic report uh, that's full of inaccuracies. How useful is that? Or family lore that's largely made up. It might be entertaining to picture your mom falling 30 feet and doing a belly flop, but it's not. it kind of loses the humor if you find out it didn't happen. Or it's not nearly as inspiring to hear how God led her and her friends out of the Colorado mountains to safety if you find out, well, that's not actually how the story went. So my kid's question, is it true, is an entirely appropriate question. And it's the same question that we need to ask when we come to the story of Easter, the story of Christ's resurrection. Is this true? Is it true? Because the resurrection of Jesus is not some incidental detail in the Christian story. Like one of those things that, you know, you could give it or take it, but it doesn't really matter. It is central to the hope and message of Christianity. And we've seen that as we've been going through the book of Acts uh, recently on Sunday mornings, how central the resurrection is to the apostles' message. We often rightly summarize the Christian faith with the symbol of the cross, with, with Christ's crucifixion where he willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins, and that's, that's a right emphasis on the cross, but, but what Christ accomplished on the cross, he completed in the resurrection. I mean, after all, you think about it, three people died that Friday on the cross. Only one of them got up Sunday morning. So the resurrection matters. It's, it's really the basis of Christianity. And it matters not just whether it's a good story that inspires people. It matters whether or not it actually happened in real life. 
The stories that we have in the Gospels are not meant to be fictional. They're not myth or fable. These are written as historical narrative, a record of what really happened. And so the question, is that true? Did that really happen? That's, that's not just appropriate. That is essential if we're going to have confidence in the Christian faith. I mean, you take away the resurrection of Jesus and you lose Christianity. You lose it. If Christ did not rise in history, then we are wasting our time today in worship. More than that, we'll find that we're wasting our lives. I mean, that's essentially what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's empty, it's useless, and you're still in your sins. There's no, there's no salvation without the resurrection. But if it's true, if this is not just a good story, but if this is true, that Jesus rose bodily from the grave on the third day, then that changes everything, literally everything. And, and so is there a basis for the basis of Christianity? That's the question I want to explore this morning. Should we believe in Christ's resurrection from the dead? And, and I want to explore that from Matthew's gospel, the first book in the New Testament. And unlike some of the other New Testament authors like John or Paul, Matthew doesn't spend a lot of time on the theological significance of the resurrection, of what it means. I mean, it's there, but that's not his emphasis. His primary burden is simply to demonstrate that it actually happened that Jesus really did die, he really was buried, and he really did rise on the third day, just as he said he would. He didn't just rise in my heart, metaphorically or spiritually. He rose bodily from the grave. And, and the way that Matthew makes his point is like a well-played game of chess. I'm not a chess player uh, but I'm told that if you're really going to be good at chess, you have to anticipate your opponent's moves. You have to think several moves ahead. Let's, what we see Matthew doing here as he anticipates the different ways that people might try and explain away the resurrection, the different challenges that critics or skeptics might have, he anticipates each one of those and then cuts them off at the pass, uh, sometimes confronting them directly, but other times just maneuvering so beautifully as to counter those theories that others might bring to discredit the story. And so what I want to do is help us see that game unfold, see this, this, the anticipated theories that in Matthew's skillful check at each point so that we can believe with confidence that this is a true story, that it really happened, that Jesus is risen. So let's look again at our passage and, and consider the first theory in trying to kind of explain away the resurrection. The first theory is that, that Jesus wasn't really dead. He wasn't really dead. It's possible, some have suggested, that, that Jesus 
hadn't quite yet died while he was on the cross. They, they took him down too early. It wasn't done. And he had just swooned or he had fainted from blood loss or shock and then finally came to three days later and left the grave. Uh, that theory's been very popular among critical scholarship over the last 150 years. But what's interesting is that Matthew actually anticipates that by going into the details of what happened to Jesus' body after they took him down from the cross. If you look again at 27, verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. So nobody just came and claimed Jesus' body off the cross. That was Rome's property, right? Rome handed the body over to, Jesus, uh, over to uh, Joseph. And as one historian puts it, the Roman soldiers and governors didn't go in for halfway measures when it came to carrying out capital sentences. They knew how to kill people, and they knew how to make sure they were really dead. And in, in fact, in Mark's account of this story, it tells us how Pilate himself double-checked with the guards to make sure Jesus was dead before handing the body over. Jesus really died, and he really was buried. Joseph wrapped him in a linen shroud, and John tells us that, that together Joseph and, and Nicodemus applied about 75 pounds of spices to the corpse as part of a Jewish burial custom. Had Jesus simply fainted uh, and then later awoken and come out of the grave, then as, as one scholar uh, named David Strauss, who is himself a skeptic of the resurrection, as he famously put it, it's impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher who, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, who still at least yielded to his sufferings, it's impossible that he could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death, that he was the prince of life, an assumption that was at the bottom of their future ministry. It, it just doesn't compute. Jesus really did die. He really did die. But did he stay dead? Did he stay dead? The second theory that tries to kind of uh, explain away the resurrection is that the disciples went looking for the wrong body. So first, he, he didn't really die. Well, we know he did. Well, they went looking for the wrong body. After all, ancient Jewish burial customs are, are very different than what we are used to today. Uh, they didn't bury bodies in coffins in a single hole in the ground, uh, much less burn them like their, their pagan neighbors did. Instead, uh, it was common to put many bodies in the same tomb, they had different shelves within the tomb, and then after that body's decayed, they would go in and collect the bones and put them into a box called an ossuary. And so... What if the disciples came in and they were looking on the wrong shelf, right? Jesus' body is over here with some others, and they're looking at an empty slot. They just 
They were looking for the wrong body. Well, again, Matthew anticipates this move and cuts it off in verses 59 and 60. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. It was a brand new tomb. There were no other bodies in it. So there was no way to be confused about which body was missing because the whole thing was empty. But what if they simply went to the wrong tomb? Okay, so it was an empty, you know, the, the, the tomb was only one body in there. But what if they went to the wrong tomb? That's the third theory. And, and again, it's a very popular explanation in recent years. You know, when Carissa and I lived in Wheaton, uh, we had a knock on our apartment door in the middle of the night, like 3 a.m. one night. And I opened the door to be greeted by several police officers. Uh, they had seen a broken window in our building with a ladder underneath it, and they had tried to kind of count and determine which apartment that was. They were checking to see if we were, if there were intruders in our apartment or if maybe we were the intruders, but they miscounted. It was our neighbor's apartment, uh, a couple of young guys who had gotten drunk and locked themselves out of their apartment and rather than call dad for help, decided, what if we just got a ladder and broke into our own apartment? Genius plan. <laughs> so, so maybe that's what happened on that Sunday morning. Maybe the women miscounted and went to the wrong tomb. But notice what Matthew says in verse 61 when Jesus is being laid to rest. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The same Mary and Mary who had been at the cross in verse 56 had been at the tomb when Jesus was put to rest there on Friday. They knew which tomb to go to. Moreover, if they had simply just gone to the wrong tomb, it would have been pretty easy for Rome to go to the right tomb grabbed the body, paraded around town, and put Christianity to death forever. Easy. The tomb was empty. It really was empty. So, so he really did die. He really was buried. They did go to the right tomb, and the tomb was empty. How else do we explain this? Theory number four. The disciples stole the body. The disciples must have stolen the body. The chief priests and, and the Pharisees were afraid they might try that trick. Uh, so they actually went to Pilate and tried to put some countermeasures in place in advance. If you look again at verse 62, the next day, that is the, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember what that imposter said, how while he was still alive, uh, that he said, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said, you've got a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. And they went to the tomb and secured it by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, what's funny here is that, that the religious leaders didn't really need to worry about the disciples trying to break into the tomb. The disciples were trying to protect the tomb from others breaking in. Joseph was the one who rolled the stone in front of it to keep 
others out, whether grave robbers or, or whoever, thieves. And, and, and that's the stone that Pilate sets his seal on, this Roman seal that basically says, if you mess with this tomb, you mess with Rome. Now, the disciples had just seen what Rome could do to their king, and they hightailed it out of there. They're hiding for their lives. They were in no frame of mind to test Rome's resolve. Uh, moreover, as one scholar notes, that to steal the body would run counter to everything that they've been talking about in terms of morality and honesty and following God. It just doesn't fit. Nor would it begin to explain this dramatic transformation from being dejected and afraid and dispirited, hiding for their lives, and, and turning them into bold witnesses willing to be persecuted for their message. So, and, and, and again, if, if they stole the body, this is probably the most significant point, if they stole the body, they knew Jesus was actually dead. Like, they would know that this whole thing of the resurrection was actually a lie, yet all but one of those 12 apostles died a martyr's death for their testimony. They died proclaiming Jesus was crucified and risen on the third day. Would they really be so willing to face torture and execution if they knew this was just kind of a, a concocted lie? That doesn't make sense. But here's where Matthew really puts his opponents into check. He, he recognizes the power of this theory, and so he wants people to know where it actually came from. Not from the disciples' actions, but from a conspiracy of the Jewish religious leaders. He exposes the real source of the story in chapter 28, verse 11. While, they're going, while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests, this is after the guards had been you know, knocked over by the angels and the, the tomb was empty and Jesus was raised, they went and reported what had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So the best defense that the Jewish leaders can come up with against the resurrection was based on a bribe and a lie, and pretty poor logic. So, so if Jesus really did die, if he really was buried, if, he really, if the witnesses really did find an empty tomb, and there's no way the disciples could have stolen the body, how else do we explain what happened that day? There's one more theory to consider this morning, that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Matthew 28, 1. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. How do we explain the empty tomb? 
Jesus rose bodily from the grave, just as he said. The king who was enthroned on a cross is the king who has now conquered death. But is that theory credible? Is that true? Is that believable? Well, I think there are several reasons to take confidence and believe the truthfulness of this account. Uh, First, if you were going to make up a story in the ancient world about how your failed king actually rose from the dead victoriously, you wouldn't pick women as your star witnesses. It's sad but true that, that women were not seen as reliable testimony in the ancient world. Uh, you're going to have a hard time convincing people that Jesus really rose if that's what you're basing your testimony on. So, why do all four Gospels say that the women were the first ones to arrive at the tomb? It's pretty poor storytelling. Well, they say it because that's what actually happened. That's not a detail you would have made up if you were trying to sell a story. They're simply telling the truth. Moreover, these were not the only people who witnessed the resurrected Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, meaning as Paul's writing this letter, you can go talk to them and ask them though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So there were multiple witnesses. But what about some of the variations in details in the story? In the different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all tell the resurrection story. But, you know, uh, for instance, Matthew says there was one angel, but John says there were two. Uh, Matthew, the women seem to encounter Jesus on their way to get the disciples. Uh, In John, Mary retrieves Peter and John and then meets Jesus and and goes on to report what she saw. I mean, doesn't, doesn't those variations in detail, doesn't that discredit the story? Well, when I get home uh, from work, uh, my kids will often tell me about their day. And sometimes they will dispute the details with each other of what happened when and so on and so forth. But just because they sometimes disagree on the details doesn't mean, therefore, nothing actually happened today. In the same way, we may find minor variations in the gospel stories about Jesus' resurrection, which, by the way, I don't think reflect uh, contradictions so much as different levels of precision in reporting. And we can grab a Starbucks and talk about what that means, if you'd like. But no one from those variations can conclude, therefore, nothing happened at all. Something most definitely happened. Something so category-breaking, so earth-shattering, so that, that no single witness was able to take the whole thing in. And in fact, the agreement is remarkably substantial. Uh, Chuck Colson, who uh, is famed for having committed a felony and going to prison during the Watergate scandal, uh, after which or during which he became a Christian, he once reflected, he says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? 
Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave, just as he said he would. And when he did, he changed everything. Because he died for our sins and conquered death, he's able, uniquely able, to give new life, forgiveness, new and eternal, unending life in an undying relationship with God to everyone who will turn away from sin and trust him in faith, believe that he is who he says he is and that he's done for us what only he could do. And, and when we let that truth hit us, when we let the, the marvel of Easter and all that it means hit us. You realize why the women responded the way they did in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Kind of seems like those should be in opposition, but with fear and great joy, that was their response. Fear, because if Jesus is raised, this changes everything. God is so much bigger than we thought he was. I mean, the possibilities of what he might do in and through us or what he might call us to are so much greater because here is a God who has the power to raise the dead. If you follow him, your life will never be the same. Fear and great joy because if Christ is risen, this changes everything. He really is the king. He really is the savior. He really is putting this world back together again. The renewal that we sung about, the renewal that, that Kim talked about, he really is making all things new, and he really deserves our wholehearted allegiance. If Jesus is raised, help is near. I have a living savior who is with me by the Spirit to strengthen me for every good work. If Jesus is raised, that means hope is real. There is waiting for me a perfect inheritance kept in heaven and the promise of my own bodily resurrection like Christ's when he returns. If Jesus is raised, then no matter what suffering or hardship I face today, I have confidence that this will end well. Death doesn't get the final word. Life gets the final word in Christ. That's good news. If Jesus is raised, God really is making all things new. And he will be faithful to complete it in the end. Fear and joy. That's our response to the resurrection, a fear and joy that are grounded in faith and overflowing in worship. 
Faith that, that, that I no longer have to trust in myself, that it's not what I do for God, it's what Christ has done for me. And worship, just like the two Marys in our story who bow before Christ, to whom we owe everything. Not because we deserve it, but who has saved us by his grace. Is this story true? I believe it is that Jesus Christ is risen and that that changes everything. And so may we trust in him and find forgiveness and new life. May we, with fear and joy, worship him. Not just in song, we're going to do that in a minute, but with our whole lives devoted to this one who is the crucified and risen King. May we worship Him with faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You have done the impossible. The impossible, not simply raising the dead. That's impossible. Only You could do that. But, but raising the dead so as to make unworthy sinners Your own. That's impossible for us to, to have an abiding relationship with you in light of our fallenness and brokenness and rebellion. Only you can give us new life. And you have proven it in your love through the cross and you have accomplished it through the cross and resurrection. May we worship you with faith in Jesus. May we have confidence that Jesus is risen. We ask it in his name. Amen.